Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Protein is a food group we all know about and are striving to get more of in our diet as it does have major benefits for health. But are you struggling to find easy, affordable and quick ways of doing this? When we consider where our protein comes from, often the first thing that jumps into our mind would be beef, chicken, eggs, fish. But there are, however, so many options available for you to choose from, and this includes yogurt, which can be a high source of protein as well. Yo Valley have done just that with their super thick kerned yogurt, with two different varieties containing 9 and 10 grams of protein per 100 grams. So for a straightforward and definitely inexpensive way to incorporate more protein into your diet, especially at the start of your day, Yo Valley's Super Thick Kern Yogurt could be that daily boost that you're after. Consider Yo Valley's Super Thick Kerned Natural Yogurt. This is high in protein, low in sugar, and it's available in 5% and 0% fat. To find out more, head to yovalley.co.uk and find it in your local supermarket. Hello and thank you so much for tuning in to Food for Thought, a podcast on a mission to equip you all with the evidence-based advice you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, registered nutritionist, best-selling author of Renourish, a simple way to eat well and founder of Retrition, London's leading private nutrition clinic. In each episode, I'm so lucky to be joined by special guests, all of whom can be considered authoritative voices in health so that together we can learn fact from fiction and empower the healthiest and happiest versions of ourselves with the trusted expert advice. Whether you're afraid of it or think that you're addicted to it, there is no doubt that sugar is in all of our lives. It's now suggested that sugar is found in about 75% of the foods that we eat, with it amounting to as much as 15% of a UK's adult daily calorie intake. While eating too much sugar is associated with obesity and a whole host of problems, there's also so much misinformation that often makes eating even moderate amounts of sugar sound worse than it actually is. After all, we do need sugar to live. So in this week's Food for Thought, we see registered dietitian and senior teaching fellow Dwayne Meller and I uncover all the myths that you really need to stop believing and explore whether sugar really is the devil that it's made out to be. Hello, Dwayne. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, how are you doing? Um, okay, sort of reviewing lots of papers and things. It's a quiet time in the academic year. I think today's episode, we're discussing sugar today. And a lot of people will start the day, if we're talking about sugar today, with cereals. And that's something I think is, is very confusing for people um, because reading labels isn't as straightforward as it would seem, is it? It's, it's not because there's different forms of sugar and they're labeled slightly differently and they're used from a 
um, food production point of view in different ways. So there's a whole range of ways that sugar is found in cereals. And you know, I can remember there's a product of a certain cereal company that tried to make it cereal sugar free. And that didn't go down well in the marketplace because the purpose of the sugar in that cereal, as well as flavour, was a coating to stop it going very mushy in milk quickly. And there are technological solutions, possibly using some fibres, but whether they use them. So if you're looking at a label, um, when we look at the recommendations, they don't quite match up. Because if we're looking at the recommendation from WHO to global level or SACN, which is the UK advisory group for the government, they talk about free sugars. But because of the way legally foods are labelled, that's total sugars you know, or, or of which carbohydrates, as they're described on there. And it's very hard to be able to look between the two because something might contain something that's not a free sugar. And just to clarify, free sugar is added sugar, but also sugar from things like juices and honey and syrups and sort of in debatable how you use purees. You know, it can, can go either way. So you can have something that's free from added or free sugars but it's still got a high concentration of sugar in there. And there's lots of ways that can be labelled in a way that's not necessarily always in the consumer's interest. So as you've just said, Dwayne, it's so confusing and so overwhelming, even just hearing you explain explain sugars on a packet. And for a lot of people listening that aren't sure why, why you mentioned carbohydrates, of course, glucose found in carbohydrates as a form of sugar, it can be very overwhelming. And you said different regulatory boards or different different places state different things. And the current World Health Organization guidelines now recommend no more than seven teaspoons or cubes. So that's around 30 grams a day for us all. Is that realistic, would you say? It's definitely a challenge. Um, British Nutrition Foundation have modelled sort of the recommendations of diet, and it is possible. It's a very different way of eating to most of be used to, because you'd be looking at, you know, having things like plain yogurt with added fruit rather than this, so a sweetened fruit yogurt that's ready made up, for example. You'd be looking at sort of quite plain cereals or things like. Um, porridge oats where you can actually control any additional sugar rather than having it added at source and it involve a lot more cooking so it involve making a um, a ragu or a bolognese sauce from the onions the the garlic maybe celery and carrots and adding the tomatoes in so you get the sweetness naturally through cooking rather than sweetening in a ready-made sauce so it is possible, but it's a little bit more work. It involves actually understanding what's in the food and possibly making more food from scratch, which for some people, they may not have the time or the resources to do that. So it, it involves engaging people in a conversation to look at what's in food and look at how they can change what they eat to possibly try and make it a little bit more simple and a little bit more back to basic ingredients. I couldn't agree more. And, and you mentioned in lockdown, people are cooking more. So it would be lovely if only we'd done a research study or conducted something to see how many people have actually, now they've had perhaps a little bit more time, if they had access, of course, to the resources, have cooked from scratch. And if they will continue to stay that way rather than buying, let's say, jarred sauces and things that would contain more added sugars. So for, for people listening... Products that are deemed to be high in sugar have more than 22.5 grams of sugars per 100 grams. 
what would that roughly look like to someone if if they're looking at a packet what standard item would that be there's a, there's a number you know there's a number of sort of the sweetened cereals although a lot of the major companies have reduced the sugar content in the cereals so you could have um something like a chocolate coated cereal or it could be sort of a coated a sugar coated cereal yeah it'd be worth checking them out because as i say some have some companies have made efforts to reduce their sugar possibly not as rapidly as a lot of the pressure groups would like the argument being that from a public health point of view gradual reduction will mean the public's palate will not respond badly to it um you could also potentially have some fruit-based um products or even things like some things like tomato sauces because the way they're made will have quite a lot of sugar in it some of it's added sugar but some of it's through the process of cooking down things like tomatoes or sort of cooking down the fruit to make it actually drive off the water because basically if you're cooking a product you're driving off the water but you'll be leaving the sugar behind and then we get into the the sticky situation and literally it can be sticky when you start talking about dried fruit although that's not free sugar so from a world health point of view or a um, second point of view it wouldn't be classed as free sugar there's a lot of sugar in these products and we need to remember that what would be a handful of grapes becomes little more than a, a dessert spoonful of raisins and we need to bear in that in mind when we're formulating our portion sizes which is fascinating because over the years i think people have always looked at dried fruit in particular as an equivalent almost because it counts towards your five a day as a portion of fruit but of course if you're looking at the sugar content they they're worlds apart aren't they mm. Uh, and sort of it's not a case of not eating these foods because things like apricots can be a valuable addition in terms of things like iron. So there are other nutrients in there. So it's not the same as eating table sugar. It's just remembering that when it was fresh, it was a lot bigger. So you need to sort of scale down the portion size. So you're eating the same size portion rather than just having a handful of dried fruit as you would with fresh fruit. It's not the, not the, not equivalent. Yeah. And it's about having, I mean, one thing that I know yourself and I as registered dietitian and nutritionist want to encourage is a healthy relationship with, with food and not alienating any particular food group. And of course, enjoying these items. But as you quite rightly said, we do need to be educated and we do need to be aware of the sugar intake because of the effect it can, of course, have on our health. So to simplify it for our listeners, now you've said before, free sugars are the additional sugars but of course could you explain the fact that that's why we're being wary of them why are we wary of free sugars rather than the sugars intrinsically found naturally like you just said in, in fruit or vegetables well we, there's a few points really if you look at the sugars that are naturally found within food so we've got dairy products and we've got fruit and and some um vegetables so if you're looking at the sugar in dairy products is a different sugar so it's more slowly metabolized it's lactose it takes much more effort for our body to break it down also if you're looking at dairy products there can be a valuable source of other things such as protein and calcium and some b vitamins particularly b12 so there's other value to go with that and also if we look at fruit they're within a fibrous container so the cells of the the, the fruit and also vegetables fibrous and that has benefits so that slows down the release of the sugars 
but also as a other health benefits for us. And if we look at fruits in particular, a lot of fruits are very good sources of vitamin C. Vitamin C is an essential nutrient, and there are other nutrients and minerals we find in these foods. Whereas free sugar tends to come as just the energy source in a much more concentrated supply, and plus it tends to be easier to overconsume. You haven't got the bulk of the fruit, the bulk with the water and the fibrous sort of container the fruit comes in, if you like, and mm. that sort of takes more effort to eat. So if you look at sort of an orange and a sort of a half pint glass of orange juice, you don't necessarily automatically think there's four oranges in that glass of orange mm. juice or even more, and therefore all the sugar from all those oranges, but you rarely think to to rapidly consume four oranges in the time it takes to drink that juice. Yeah, you'd always be amazed. Um, I love that analogy. I always tell my clients in clinic, I say, could you eat four or five oranges in a row? Well, one of them did turn around and say, oh, yeah, I could definitely do that. I was like, that wasn't quite the, <laughs> quite the response I was looking for, because, of course, a portion of fruit juice is only 150 millilitres. But when you look at packets of it on the shop shelves, Duane, it's a lot more, isn't it? Sometimes 300 mils in a bottle. Mm. And, and that's when you're looking at some of these things, particularly beverages in terms of, of drinks. You've got a suggested portion size and that can be less. But if you've got something like a 300 or 500 ml bottle of juice, it's not necessarily clear to the consumer or, or many consumers wouldn't think that they would spit that down into if it's 500 milliliter bottle of, of fruit juice into three portions, it's generally considered that is the amount you drink. And that's, again, something that's communicated, but not necessarily communicated clearly enough to the, the public. And um, if we look at sort of the portion size for juices, they, are, they have been reduced to about 150 milliliters is a recommended amount of juice to have once a day. And, mm. yeah. It's not to say don't drink fruit juice, it's just being aware and mindful of the amount you consume. Because for some populations, we know consuming fruit juice is a valuable additional source of vitamin C in, because there's a lack of other fruit and vegetables in their diet because of various access reasons. And we should be aware that it's not saying no, don't do it, it's being aware of the portion sizes. A little bit uh, how we we're talking about dried fruit earlier. It's not that these foods are intrinsically bad. It's the fact that they're easy to overconsume. Therefore, we need to be thoughtful in when we're eating them to be be aware of portion size and better education on portion sizes and how to enjoy those portions, which are smaller than we might expect in a way we find enjoyable. Because we don't feel deprived by things being shrunk down to tiny portions. We need to find fun ways of communicating that. Yeah, it's... It's one of those things. I mean, I, I bought, um, for instance, for everybody listening, I'm not perfect. I may be a nutritionist, but I could easily buy a whole pack of Majore dates and eat the entire pack. And a portion is about maybe two or three of those dates. So it is it is extremely easy to overconsume these tasty items. And when we talk about portion control, a lot of people have a misconception. So we busted the myth that, of course, um, fruit is bad for you because we know we should be consuming it. It is good for us. But when we're talking about sugar, a lot of people, Dwayne, say it's addictive. Now, we know this isn't necessarily true, but could you explain why there are some foods that people do find harder to moderate and give up than others? So there's, there's various aspects of what we, what's in the general discussion of what people describe as food addiction, which isn't really a true addiction. Um, 
there's some data from animal models that you know you can get rats to prefer sugar to cocaine it's not a valid model really because we've got to remember a rat in a cage will eat its own feces and humans rarely do that so we need to look at how humans behave differently and our food environment is part of the issue so our food environment puts a lot of these things in front of us through marketing through availability in shops through promotions that make them highly desirable our advertising of foods tend to make these foods more desirable and aspirational so we have that sort of economic structural aspect that's a problem we're also biologically driven to enjoy them because historically high energy foods were scarce in a similar way the high salt foods are scarce so these are desirable flavors to us so we seek them out enjoy them and our our brains are not geared to think that we're going to have an endless supply of these foods so that drives us to consume them and keep uh, consuming them it's not an addiction it's a biological drive built on pleasure Mm. and then there's this sort of the the social aspect of it that some people then consume then feel guilty then over consume and we've almost lost this ability to enjoy these foods at a steady state and a sensible amount and then go i've enjoyed this this is great instead we go i've enjoyed this i've enjoyed a bit too much i'm a bad person and i can feel guilty therefore you go into a guilt cycle you may avoid it then you go through this either this sort of purging then you'll go and have a large amount again then you purge and you go through this cycle of not being happy with yourself not being happy with your food intake rather than thinking these foods taste great i'm a good person i can enjoy them but i can be in control of this because our food environment and our culture have driven us away from that. So I think say there's a culture, there's a food environment, but also there's our biology. And we need to learn how to manage these if we can't change them. Hopefully we'll get to change our food environment to actually reduce that. And then we just need to balance the, the social societal aspect of food and sort of our own behaviours. So we can enjoy them and deserve to enjoy them. And that's, I think, a message that can get lost sometimes. Well, no, no easy feat there. I mean, what we've just described, changing the food environment is so difficult uh, with uh, ve- for various different reasons, um, accessibility, uh, financial, or, or what is available, money, politics, all of it seems to stem into food environments. And for our listeners, when Dwayne and I discuss food environment, we, we mean the Western world that we're discussing currently and referring to at the moment with your 24 hour availability to food, which I guess in 20, 30, 40, I don't know, however many years ago, we didn't have 24 hour a day access to takeaways like Deliveroo or Just Eat. Um, We didn't have those sorts of things to deal with. So our food environment has changed. Our activity levels have changed. Our relationships with food have changed. Our stress levels have changed. There's so much more going on. Like Duane said, it's biological, it's, it's social, it's the environment that we live in. So sugar isn't necessarily addictive. It's just the fact that we live in a very different world, don't we, Dwayne? Yes, and there are glimmers of hope. And from if we look at what happened with the soft drinks industry levy, or what most people call the sugar tax, that led to mass reformulation over a matter of a few months of the soft drink supply in the UK. It's only if when when people get a chance to travel abroad again, you notice how high in sugar most soft drinks are in other countries Mm. we have one or two sort of 
um, classic brands, which are sort of the full sugar, but most of them are half sugar at least. And there's many more sort of sugar-free soft drinks in the market in the UK than is compared to the countries. And that was because of this levy that was put in place that basically drove change through the industry. And the change in the food industry came first before the, the, the taxation came in. And if we can get more cleverly put together bits of legislation to encourage positive reformulation of our food supply, we can get big changes in improving the quality of our diet. Whether we start sort of bringing in subsidies for, for fresh food, we've got to make sure that's equitable and people can mm-hmm. access it, have the skills and the space to store these foods, you know, because um, we assume everyone's got a fridge now to keep fresh food in. Mm. That's not always the case. Gosh, it, it's it's extremely complex and there's a chain, there's a knock-on effect of people that are impacted, of course, livelihoods, lot, lots of different things to consider. And it's not as simple as saying, as we've said before on this podcast all the time, we discuss that food is not good or bad. It's too simplistic to say you should or shouldn't eat this because a lot of people out there, and there are some research studies that Dwayne quite rightly shut down earlier that are on rodents saying that we just shouldn't be eating it, that sugar is bad, that it's the devil and it's the cause of all the problems in the Western world. If you could actually delve into what the main consequences are of eating too much sugar, Dwayne, just so people know that it is all about balance. And there's there's, there's, there's a few misconceptions about sugar itself. The the advocates for sugar is bad and needs to be rapidly reduced are proponents of a theory which is sort of the insulin theory that Mm. if you consume carbohydrate or sugar your body makes insulin and that leads to something called insulin resistance insulin resistance is the thing that's thought to drive things like type 2 diabetes higher blood pressure and risk of heart disease so what actually is known is that when you eat something that contains carbohydrate or sugar, your body makes the hormone insulin and that goes up in a wave and comes down in a wave as the sugar from that food is absorbed and used to suck away in, in our cells, in our muscles, in our livers. If we have a reasonably active lifestyle, that should work out fairly well and it's not a problem. But in an increasingly inactive world, we don't use up those stores in our muscles and therefore the extra sugar and some refined carbohydrates not the things like porridge oats and the soy absorbs uh, sort of fibrous starchy foods uh, you know some rices pasta that sort of thing that's different than sort of some of the root vegetables but if you're looking about sort of very refined white bread and some of the very processed sort of uh, noodles i think have been quoted in one study as being more of a problem then if we're not exercising we've not depleted our stores of these um sort of sugars in our muscles and therefore they need to go somewhere else and that's when our liver stops sending to fat and one thing of an inactive lifestyle along with alcohol consumption and excess energy alongside sugar and that's where it comes in you're consuming too many calories or too much energy is alongside the sugar we can get what's known as a non-alcoholic fatty liver so our liver starts to turn these sugars to fat and because those those fats can't move out our liver can get slightly large and slightly fatty that can 
then lead to this insulin resistance and this risk of type 2 diabetes. But also it's thought long term, and I don't want to panic anyone listening because this is over a matter of many years, mm. um, increase the risk of cirrhosis of the liver in a similar way that too much alcohol is. It's not as harmful as alcohol, to be clear. And it, if the amount of sugar and energy going into our body is used correctly by being physically active as well as eating sensible amounts, this does not happen. It's a combination of having the genetics and an active lifestyle and consuming too much, too many calories, some of which being sugar. Yeah, which is complex. It's definitely not yeah. as simple as energy in, energy out with one set amount being right for everybody. Because, of no. course, you mentioned that some people are more predisposed to certain um conditions than others um different ethnic groups lots of different factors to to build in and this is where i get a little bit of a bee in my bonnet Dwayne, with, with people that say it's just the devil it's bad for you because so many people out there require it as well and it also um demonizes carbohydrates which is which is a whole other subject and it is complicated maybe we should go into type 2 diabetes a little bit because i think it affects so many people um, and everybody will know somebody that has it or someone within their family or their friends. What exactly is the main cause of type 2 diabetes? Because it, it's so, not sugar. Type 2 diabetes, it's commonly, most commonly linked to excess body weight and body fat. Um, although in certain ethnic groups, it can appear at a low, what we call body mass index. That's a ratio of weight for height where the ideal for most populations below 25 but as I was mentioning before there's this concept where we need to think about the role of our muscles almost like rechargeable batteries that we need to take through a charging cycle so if we allow our batteries to permanently be on charge we have a problem that any extra energy coming in will be stored as fat and that increases our risk of insulin resistance because of having this fat in the liver and, and fat stored elsewhere so it's a combination of excess energy, which can be me measured by weight, also genetics and in certain ethnic groups. So we've got people of South Asian origin in particular, but also from Southeast Asia and sort of Africa um, and sort of people who have come to Britain via the Caribbean as well, are higher risk of type 2 diabetes at an earlier age. Um, there's various theories about that. Um, is likely to be genetic. There is also work that was done based on um, work in Southampton, based on weighing the size of babies compared to their placentas. And if babies grow differently according to the size of the placentas, so you get a small baby in a big placentas, because they're relatively starved during pregnancy, when they get fed a lot of food, when they become children and adults, that can increase their risk as well. So it's a complex effect of genes, environment, and the interaction between the two that increase the risk of type 2 diabetes. And I think, although that sounds very complicated, is there a simple answer? Yes, it comes back to eating a variety of foods, not mm. too much, and particularly not too much energy rich. So food that's high in energy that doesn't have a lot of vitamins, minerals, and fiber with it, and trying to keep as active as possible. Mm, gosh, I, I was fascinated by that study with, with, with the babies and, and the placenta. It's 
Gosh, so much emerging research and things to take into account that it just makes your brain explode, really, when you're thinking about it all. Because I think our mental health is also an element to take into account here, of course, because our emotional links to the diet that we consume will also therefore impact our health, surely. And and there's a number of issues there. And you can look at it from a psychological point of view or more of a social point of view and a cultural point of view, is that we should be able, we have a right to enjoy food. I think we don't talk about that enough. Mm. And we need to find a way of in, having a healthy way of interacting with food to enjoy it. And some sweetness in our food gives us pleasure. And we don't talk about that enough. And it's looking for that natural sweetness without um, adding a lot of extra sugar in. So we become almost blind to other flavours. And that's where a lot of the flavour science is coming in now, uh, as well as looking at how we can actually enjoy food without necessarily being dependent on just sweetness. So we're looking at balance of flavours. And that helps mental health is finding ways of interacting food that we can enjoy. And we don't want to get down the argument of talking about physical activity. We have a problem. We talk about physical activity that we almost eat. So we have to be physically active to compensate for what we've eaten rather than thinking how we can gain enjoyment from both. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely something we discuss on this podcast a lot. It's it's a very fine line, um, being extreme or or not doing enough for, for your health and happiness. There, it's very very difficult to differentiate sometimes. I think between the two, and people end up getting stuck in what they think they should or they shouldn't be doing. And I think scaremongering is often is often to blame a lot of the time. Some media headlines have even linked sugar, Dwayne, to cancer. Are there correlations with that sort of terrifying headline? Again, this is where you can go to some really complicated and, and quite interesting science. Mm. So you've got this idea of um, there's, there's two hypotheses. There's a reverse one and there's the, the forward one. So the idea that certain cancer cells in a test tube tend to replicate more quickly and more likely to show signs of metastases in a test tube if you feed them sugar. Mm. And there is also the reverse idea, the reverse hypothesis theory of that, that there are some different types of cancer cell in the test tube. That if you don't feed them sugar and you feed them breakdown products of fat, something called ketones, they do the same, they replicate and more likely show signs of breaking off and seeding cancers elsewhere. So both are true. If we look at what we term risk factors for cancer, some are hormonal, some are environmental. So if you've got a diet that's too high in energy leading to weight gain, that at a population level will increase increase risk of developing certain cancers, um, postmenopause breast cancer, uterine cancer, some kidney cancers, for example. Um, and there's, a, there's about 13 different sites. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The thing is, that's at a population level. It's not looking at the individual's genetic risk, mm. environmental risk, occupational exposure, physical activity, diet quality. And if you're just measuring height overweight, you're not looking at muscle mass. There's a whole range of variables you've not looked at. So... Mm. To say at a human level, does sugar cause cancer? It will be as part of an overall lifestyle in terms of excess energy intake and sort of lack of physical activity, which we know physical activity we don't talk about is probably one of the biggest risk reduction factors for colon cancer. I think the evidence is probably stronger for physical activity than it is for fibre. Mm. Everyone talks about fibre and colon. So we need to look at a holistic way of basically enjoying what we eat and celebrating what we our bodies can do I think yes it's important and it is it's important people know and this is what I love about this podcast is that you you want to share this information it's important people have a right to have informed choices about the decisions they make with with their diet and their lifestyle every single day you did use um the word which I should just tell our listeners um metastases which is the spread of cancer so cancer spreading um if anyone was a bit confused by what we meant there. But it is... And that's only in the test tube, we need to remember. It's not the same as being human disease. Yeah, which is so important to clarify because ultimately we are not test tubes. We are such complex individuals and science is probably just scraping the surface with all the different things that are emerging constantly that we want we want to learn. And ultimately we, we do kind of need sugar to survive, don't we? Well, our bodies make sugar, and you know, if if we look at it, sort of fructose, which is demonised um, in some areas because it bypasses the pathway into the liver to make fat theoretically more rapidly, but only if there's consuming excess energy. But human beings wouldn't exist because that is the sugar that's made to um, uh, fuel sperm cells. Mm. So. If this wasn't made in our body, it's not from a dietary source, but it's not made in our body, we wouldn't be able to have the next generation. Um, the, the brain sort of in the fed state favours glucose as a fuel. It can use other sources. So in starvation and various types of sort of dietary practice, it can break down, use a breakdown product of fat called ketones, which I mentioned before. But it does work well on sugar and on glucose. And if you look at our red blood cells or the center of our kidneys, they can only work on on glucose. Our bodies can make it, but that's a process that needs to make it from certain bits of protein, certain amino acids, or only the sort of uh, the backbone of fat molecules. So consuming some carbohydrate can be sort of helpful. The amount that used to be quoted in the textbooks when I was learning was about 150 grams a day. It's probably a little bit lower than that, around about 60 grams a day. You know, you you can make that up from our diet, but it is, you know, is that really necessarily 
you know, because if you can eat a, a mixed diet and enjoy it, you're probably going to be eating about that amount as a min, absolute minimum anyway. Well, so that being said, what we've discussed, do you think then that public messaging around sugar has been helping everybody or do you think it's been more of a hindrance? Has it been confusing us more than more than necessary? I, I think some of the messaging style may not be helping because when it comes to adults generally we don't like being told what to do and what's not <laughs> yeah and in some of the sugar messaging um you're seeing you know it's it's very sort of negative possibly based on sort of the smoking cessation models the stopping smoking models of stop doing this because it's bad and you'll die mm. basically so it's very negatively framed with what's called a loss frame so Stop doing something is a negative bit. The loss frame, if you don't do it, something bad will happen to you. Rather than looking at what the alternative is and positively framing it, making it aspirational. Because we like things that sound luxurious or challenge, you know, that, that, that thing we aspire to. We want to be better people. So if we can frame our sugar reduction models and our healthier eating models on, on something we can eat, so it's finding, you know, it's, it's the time of year where we've got fresh peas in our garden and eating fresh peas from the pod is one of the sweetest things you can really enjoy. And if you make that sort of thing aspirational and getting that sort of being in touch and you can grow them in a, a window box, it's not like you need space. And for the pleasure you can get from that and building on pleasure so you get the hedonic, pleasurable aspects, you know, it's exactly what the food marketeers have done for years. Um, and I think we've seen that a little bit with the eat them to defeat them campaign around vegetables to get children interesting and challenging them to eat vegetables and see if they can eat better. I, I did some work with um, Action on Sugar a few years ago around their January campaign to set up league tables of who can sort of remove the lumps of sugar from from their office so you could mm -hmm. compete and make it a game to play <laughs> against each other so it's actually finding ways of engaging people into action rather than telling them if they don't do it bad things will happen yeah I, I completely agree it's reframing the mindset around things like you say getting getting the future generation excited about growing their own their own food which which I don't think they'd have thought they could do um I live in a flat in London as well I don't really have much outdoor space but even on your windowsill you you can pop um a little cherry tomato plant or something which you can have a chili plant and a few pea plants growing up sticks and it's not about being self-sufficient it's not about the good life no. it's about just being aware of how things grow and valuing tasty food that's and then looking for it that's affordable and you can manage it's not about being sort of sort of middle class aspirational and wanting expensive things and complicated things it's about finding how to do things simply well and enjoying them that doesn't I cost a lot of money yeah that that's really the key message it's almost going back to basics i do feel like we've lost we've lost a sense of of our roots or of nature in itself and and the earth and this is going to get a little bit deep deep and um philosophical Dwayne, which i'm sorry in advance but i do feel that during the lockdown and coronavirus people have had more time to think than ever before um you know pollution was a discussion that we were having the effect on crops, all these different sorts of things. And perhaps the media now could be held a bit more responsible for making 
making do-it-yourself at home a bit more positive and equally the government. There's so many different people out there that we need to hold responsible, not just the companies, but all of us, really. Everybody should be accountable. And I think when you're looking at food, the simple things to look at, we have you know, multicultural Britain is brilliant. I mean, I'm not going to apologise. You know, we have such a diverse group yeah. of people from across the world in our countries. It's always been a mix for hundreds of years of mixing of, of foods and cultures. And that has good things and bad things. We have this mixing, the, the, the sociological terms of things like a culturalization and McDonaldization, um, mm. which means we get the food and we simplify it and we blend it down so it's reproducible. And we don't need to do that. If we look at what's basic and good in our food culture, we've got things like scouse or Irish stews or Lancashire hot pots, which are vegetable based dishes which are healthy and hearty. You know, we could rebrand soups as hot smoothies. We could we could actually look at how we make the simple food more glamorous. But what mm. we've tended to do over the last 50 years is look for the, the fast food that tends to be high in fat, high in sugar, high in refined carbohydrates from each culture that's come in. And we've tended to overconsume that rather than looking at the simple things. We would go for something like a um, chicken tikka or a chicken biryani and we forget about the dal mm. we'll go for we'll go for the um fried ackee and forget about the 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 greens the the uh, i can't remember the name was the collards yeah. and rice we you know we we forget about the the stews and just stick to the fish and chips and you go to French food, French have got some great lentil soups and lentil dishes but we think about the very rich sauces and similarly with Italian food we go for the pizzas and the garlic bread and the, the lasagna and forget about the very simple Tuscan bean stews and the great salads and things. Well, I think that the key message that you've just said there is that people probably don't even know that those are Italian Tuscan bean stews because, mm. like quite rightly said, the media and what we've been exposed to just sees Italian equals pizza pasta. And that, that is that is what you get. You're right. We need to really embrace the different cultures that we've been so fortunate to have access to and to try and get a different message out there. So I hope that podcast has helped a lot of people really think a bit more outside the box, what we've just discussed. Maybe try something new. Um, try and Google different, let's pick a cuisine, different Indian cuisines this week and see see what you can create at home. And on the subject of culturally, I've got one more question to ask you, Lorraine, before I get questions from our listeners. What do you think about sugar habits, not just affecting us here, but what is what is it having an impact on globally? So there's, a, there's some confusion. If you actually look at the data, it appears that sugar consumption has declined a little bit in the UK and Australia. Um, that's where I've seen data. There's, there's issues with what's classified as sugar and it's actually added sugar. And, and yeah, if you look at global consumption in some countries, it's actually falling. In other countries, because they're going through this um I mentioned aculturalization, but you've got this sort of this food nutrition transition, which is they're going from a traditional eating habits to a more westernized way of eating. And the amount of refined foods, processed foods and sugar in their diets is starting to increase. Advertising is not necessarily as controlled. So we have issues. And I had colleagues when I was in Australia who worked in Samoa and Fiji. And they were going from a traditional diet, which is very fish based, to one where there's lots of sort of fried food and soft drinks and the obesity problems there and the type 2 diabetes were just climbing rapidly 
from from and I think you can see why because these things are told as aspirational and what they were sort of eating before was a bit more simplistic and a bit more rustic and yeah. we need to try and help people hold on to their identity and those simple ways of eating and 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 really really celebrating the food that is is, is sort of embedded in in sort of their, their environment and their culture and the the part of the world they're living because there are great foods there and to replace them with this this westernized diet is not necessarily a good thing no i i really i really like what you said there about um just embracing it and celebrating it food should be celebrated and perhaps yeah we, we've, we've lost touch which which is so sad and a f- question that we've had from one of our listeners um is the perfect example i think of how sugar has perhaps been demonized and how we have lost touch with enjoying ourselves and celebrating carrie has asked wayne if i only eat a bit of chocolate every day can i still be seen as healthy um uh, I probably need to declare that my PhD was done studying the effects of the very the specialised chocolate, especially made for my study, so you can't buy in the shop, so I need to declare on that one, uh, in type 2 diabetes. And okay. quite often people would report, the subjects would report anecdotally, that they found it easier during the study time because they had a controlled amount of chocolate, mm. which helped influence their snacking behaviour than when they they were in the sort of break periods between the, the interventions of the study. They were also on a study, which also changes behaviour a lot. So I'm not going to say it's a cure-all. But some people find the, the act of having a small amount of chocolate very mindful. And I think if we shift the thought or try and shift our thought from thinking this is a guilty pleasure to this is something I'm going to enjoy because I'm worth it, and then break the chocolate up and actually eat it fairly slowly. You don't have to do it in the sort of 20-minute way some of these mindful books suggest, but actually eating it in a way that you're allowing to sort of melt a little bit and enjoy the different flavours and the after flavours. It, it will be very healthy, but also it might give you an understanding of how to enjoy all the complexity of food. I think yeah. sometimes with some chocolates, we just eat bars of chocolate and don't necessarily think about it rather than actually spending time to enjoy them and oh, celebrate them. Easily. I mean, the amount of times I think in the evening, even myself, I don't always take my own advice. I don't always eat mindfully. I'm watching a film and my chocolate bar's gone before I know it. Um, and it does raise a question that there's now sugar alternatives. And Sam has asked, Wayne, is it true that unrefined sugar is healthier? And this is something I know that we've had professionals have had a bit of a battle with. Yeah. So this is where it gets confusing because I'll, I'll start with talking about honey, if it's OK. Yeah. Honey is basically still sugar. So from an energy point of view, from a general metabolic point of view, it's no, no, not really any difference. There are some compounds in honey which are interesting and at a population level there's some studies that show they may be interesting but we've got to remember at population levels and, and a lot of work i've looked at is in greek populations where they're consuming honey is part of an overall dietary pattern that's eaten socially and it's so complicated i'm not going to say it's a beneficial effect of honey it's how these things are consumed as part of a, a way of eating that's cultural Mm. If you're looking generally at some of these unrefined sugars, which can come from all sorts of sources, including things like coconuts, they're still basically sugar. They might have some traces of interesting compounds with them that might be beneficial or not. But, you know, if you're eating a teaspoon of unrefined sugar, you're still eating a teaspoon of sugar. 
Yeah, no, that's exactly it. It's a bit of a marketing con now as well. I think people are using those uh, phrases actually probably not correctly and getting you to buy their products thinking that it's healthier. Gemma, the last question, has said, what's the best sweetener? Now, we haven't touched on sweeteners yet as a sugar alternative for my morning cup of coffee. So this is, so I'm not going to say that having sweeteners is a good idea. I think that personally, my view of looking at the evidence and when I've been involved in evidence reviews, has suggested that it's a good stepping stone to reduce both sugar intake and sort of need for sweetness whilst appreciating some people like that sweet flavour. So that's this sort of the warning, I'm going to say. Um, mm. After that, you're looking at the purpose. So if you're looking at in a hot drink, um, you know, saccharin has a little bit of an aftertaste and the doses you use, the amounts you use, it's relatively small. You know, there's no warning signs. Aspartame, because you're not putting it into boiling hot water that's going to be hot for a long period of time, is stable enough. Um, the concerns about that and sort of things like cancer with mainly rat studies and it's not something suitable for cooking then you've got things like stevia that has a, like a licorice aftertaste so it might work okay in coffee but some people might not, might not like it in tea um, then you have splendor which again is more heat stable um, and the evidence would suggest that that's fine as well so again it's some people like the idea of stevia being a little bit more natural. It's still quite processed, but I'd say probably in tea, it might have a licorice aftertaste, which some people might like, some people might not. Wow, Dwayne, that's probably the most comprehensive answer we've had for sweeteners. You you definitely know your stuff when it comes to um, giving us the lowdown on those. I Well, we really appreciate it. It does bring us on, though, now. Now we've answered our questions from our listeners to our fact or fiction round. If you could answer fact or fiction to the following questions, obviously, being a scientist, this is one of the hardest things that you can possibly do because we know there's lots of middle ground, but let's see how we go. So, sugar is as addictive as drugs. Not in humans. There we go. The UK sugar tax hasn't worked. Wow. Um, (laughs) I think I've covered this one before. It works because it made the food industry change before it ha- actually came into force. So true. There we go. Diet drinks with no added sugar are completely harmless to health. Oh. <laughs> uh, most of them are acidic, so they damage the enamel on the teeth. So they are better than the full sugar version, but they're not without any risk. Well answered. Agave syrup is a healthy sugar. It is fructose-based. Um, again, it's sweeter, so you use less of it. It's not a healthy sugar. It is a possible way of reducing sugar. Sugar is the biggest cause of poor dental health. No, not cleaning your teeth and not having good hygiene practices. After that, mm. yes. Wow. Eating sugar at night will mean poor sleep. Only if you're doing it while watching TV into the late hours and you're not having a good hygiene routine, it's, it's probably not going to have a direct effect. Or if, it's, if you're having it in something with a lot of caffeine, like uh, tea, coffee or in chocolate. So, <laughs> um, Sugar will always make you immediately hyperactive. Only if you believe it does. <laughs> Artificial sweeteners are better for you than sugar. There's, as I said before, they're a stepping stone to reducing sugar intake, so it can be a useful tool. 
Very clear. There is no such thing as a sugar high. Again, it's only there if you believe it is or if your parents believe it is and you're a child. Mm. Everyone should try sugar detox. Um, if you don't abuse them, you've got a perfectly good detox system in your skin, lungs, liver and kidney. So you need, you should just try and eat happily and enjoy it all the time. Dwayne, thank you. That, that, do you know, that was such a comprehensive fact or fiction round. And I could hear your thought process as you said each answer. It was so clear cut. Thank you so much. No problem. That does wrap up the episode today, which is so sad because there's always too much I could discuss in the time frame that we have. And we always finish our um, podcast, Dwayne, with a food for thought, um, a little nugget of information to share with our listeners. And I will start by... I think reiterating the fact that it is complex and I like that you use the information that there's so much more than just the group, the food group of sugar itself. There's our environment, there's our genetics, there's what we believe, there's the psychology, there's so many different factors. There's a knock-on effect and a chain with so many different things and people involved when we're discussing sugar. It's, It's just definitely a far from simple subject and it's confusing because some foods that are considered healthy like fruit do have high levels of sugar but it doesn't mean you should fear fruit Um, and quite rightly the same with vegetables it is basically about the portion control and going back to those simple basics of enjoying everything in moderation and trying to get your fruit and veg consumption up I think and I like the idea of growing your own um, pot plant I think that would be a little challenge for everybody listening if you could leave our listeners, Joanne, with a take-home message today, one food for thought, what would that be? We've talked a lot about sugar and possibly reducing sugar. I think when we're talking about eating healthily, we don't think enough about what comes in. So think of the foods you can add into your diet to make it healthier and more enjoyable, and then naturally let these displace the sort of the higher sugar, the more processed foods, the higher fat foods. So think about what you can add in that you can enjoy that's healthier. And it could be something you've grown in that pot plant. There we go. Dwayne, I know you've had a lot going on and I just wanted to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for coming on and sharing your incredible knowledge. You are a beacon of light in our industry and I've always genuinely looked to the work that you do and we're very lucky to have you give up your time to come on my podcast so thank you so much no problem thank you for having me if you enjoyed this episode you're going to absolutely love what's coming next week so make sure you click subscribe to be the first to hear it and please do if you have the time leave a five-star review it does help this podcast get out there we want to be able to reach more people help more people and maybe even perhaps reach higher highs in the charts For more information about my Retrition Clinic books, healthy recipes, events, retreats, and so much more, please visit retrition.com. And you can always follow me at Retrition on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Mom 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.